Welcome to the Beyond Numbers, COVID-19 and Society podcast. We are partners from the COVID Inform Horizon 2020 project, which looks at the COVID-19 pandemic through an intersectional lens. The past two years have flipped our lives upside down. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic go far beyond physical health. COVID-19 has changed our everyday life, how we work and how we interact with other people. It has also challenged our well-being and mental health. But did it affect everyone the same? It is clear that the pandemic also uncovered and deepened the already existing inequalities in our society. This podcast is dedicated to examining those inequalities and the impact that different measures have on different groups, which is also the aim of the Govinform project. The project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. To learn more about the project, you can visit our website at www.govinform.eu or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. Hi all and welcome to the fourth episode of the Beyond Numbers COVID-19 and Society podcast. Today's episode is a special episode. I invited three experts in the areas of gender, mental health and migration and we are going to discuss these fields regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. In previous episodes, we've mentioned that the pandemic has deepened the already existing inequalities. I highly recommend going back to the first episode where we discuss vulnerability and intersectionality in more detail. Anyway, the first speaker I have the pleasure to introduce today is Dr. Sarah Clavero. Sarah has a research background in equality, diversity and inclusion in organizations with specific focus in, on academia. And she is the deputy director at the Research Center for Inclusive and Equitable Cultures at the Technological University Dublin. She is also a partner from the Resistier project, which I hope you are going to introduce a little bit more as well. And we are going to discuss the gender impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome and please feel free to add anything I might have missed in your introduction. Thank you very much, Svetlana, and thank you very much uh, for inviting me to this to participate in this in this podcast. It is a great pleasure to talk about gender inequalities and gender impacts of COVID-19. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. My first question for you would be because the overarching theme of today's episode is inequality. So I would really like to know how would you define inequality and how does it relate maybe to your research? Okay, definitions. This is a huge question uh, that could keep us talking for hours and hours, if not days, uh, because definitions, they tend to be tricky. Uh, you always exclude some aspects, some important aspects of what you are trying to define. But to be general and brief, I would define a gender inequality as a situation in which your gender determines your rights, your opportunities, your access to material resources and to social goods and services, your access to decision-making and politics as well. And it also determines, I think, uh, gender, how you are perceived and valued by others, and not only by others, but how you perceive and value yourself. 
because gender determines in very unequal ways power and status in society. In general, your lived experience in many, many areas of social life, both in the public and the private spheres. Uh, this situation arising from that is what we call generally, as I said, this is very general definition, gender inequality or gender inequalities, because there are multiple. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's it's a great definition and I'm glad we um, spoke about this in the beginning of our interview because now I want to ask you, what do we mean by saying gendered impact? Because we, I'm going to ask you what was the gendered impact of COVID-19 pandemic, but I would just like you, uh, like you to elaborate a little bit more on the terminology. Yes, gender impact. Gender inequality, the way we understand it, uh, not only me, but in general, is seen as a structural problem. It's not an individual problem, it's not, it is a structural problem that is at the heart of our societies and which determines how these societies are organized, they organize themselves. And as a structural problem, it has multiple dimensions. And what I mean by that is that we see gender inequalities in multiple spheres of life, in the public and in the private spheres, and also at all levels. And this is why, because gender inequality is a structural problem, why in the Resistere project, we are looking at the gender impacts of COVID-19 and its policy responses in many different domains. We are looking at it in the domain of gender-based violence, gender stereotypes, work and the labor markets, we are looking at the economy and care. We are looking at decision-making and politics. And apart from that, we are also looking at fundamental rights and environmental justice. So because it's a structural problem, it determines the way we approach it in the project. Well, thank you. Um, my question now really is how the COVID-19 impacted people by different genders and You've already mentioned some of the spheres, such as perhaps the uh, increase of domestic violence or the labor markets or the care responsibilities. Could you maybe elaborate more on that in terms of, you know, the gen general impact and then maybe some examples as well? Yes, what uh, we mean by gender impacts, it, it means uh, that gender plays a central role in, 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 in how a situation such as the COVID-19 pandemic or a decision, a course of action, a policy, a law, or a program such as the responses, the policy responses uh, to the pandemic affects different individuals or groups of people. For example, uh, lock lockdowns had a particular consequence on victims of domestic violence, the majority of whom are women. Or it has a particular and special impact on carers of children and dependent adults, the majority of whom are women. <laughs> so that is what, what we are looking at, that is what we mean by impact. And to give another example, there might be gender differences in the way a particular campaign advertising a COVID-19 vaccine reaches different segments of the population. And this is something that needs to be examined. And this is what we are doing. 
That's amazing. I think, um, especially the last point you mentioned about how the communication really needs to be tailored to different groups. I think that really relates to our second episode, which was about inclusive communication. I'm curious, do you think that some of the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic could have more long-term impact on deepening inequalities, especially gendered inequalities? First of all, I would like to emphasize as well, Plana, that in the long term, not all the gender impacts of COVID-19 may necessarily be negative. Because one thing that the pandemic has done is to render more visible gender inequalities that, of course, they were there, already there for a long, long time. For example, the gender division of care uh, work and its all its consequences or the need to integrate gender perspectives in research, for instance, in COVID-19 research or in research in general, just to give uh, a couple of examples. And, and the thing is that this enhanced visibility uh, could lead to increased social awareness and therefore to greater social engagement, mobilization, and also at the end policy change. So not all the impacts, as I said, may necessarily be negative. On the other hand, sure, there is, there is also the threat that gender inequalities are deepened and that a lot of the progress uh, made in the past is being reversed. And we are seeing very clear signs of this reversal. However, it is very hard uh, to make a clear link with the COVID, oh, a link of this reversal with the COVID-19 pandemic particularly. Personally, and I'm speaking here on a personal, um, I am very worried with this backlash against gender equality. We see uh, signs of anti-gender politics, you know, in, for instance, one example is Turkey's withdrawal of the Istanbul Convention. There are also, we see signs in the shutting of gender studies department, et cetera, et cetera. And all these signs, it could be, this anti-gender politics could be a sign of insecurity and social and economic anxieties that were there in the pre-pandemic times. But maybe it could be that the pandemic and the shutdown, the shutdowns have exacerbated that insecurity and that sense of anxiety. It is, it, I think it is very hard to pin this down uh, because it's a bit early to tell, okay? but. I would add to this, I mean, to be more specific, that the pandemic, what one thing that the pandemic has done, it is it has accelerated some process. One example is the is 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 digitalization, for instance, okay, of our societies with all the changes, for example, in the way we work. About this, there is a big question about the gender impacts of those processes. Okay, those processes that the pandemic has accelerated. And it is something that it needs to be studied in more depth because it is worrying, yes. This was really insightful. Thank you so much for um, your answer. I think you made really interesting point about how gender inequalities are you know, more prevalence and it is something we are talking about more, but obviously that comes with uh, even greater backlash. Anyway, I would like to now ask you 
you are from the Resi Sierra project. So I would love to know more about the project. And I would also like our listeners to know more about the project. Um, could you maybe describe what it is that you do and what is the aim of the project and where people can find you? Yes, uh, Resistire is a Spanish word and actually it is the title of a song, <laughs> if you remember well, that it became very popular during the pandemic. But Resistire stands for responding to outbreaks uh, through co-creative, inclusive, equality, strategies and collaboration. Uh, it is a EU-funded project. Uh, it lasts for two years. It aims to research uh, the gender inequalities caused by the policy responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. And also it aims to provide solutions for a fair recovery. We have a consortium uh, comprised of 10 European partners and also a network of national uh, researchers. What we do, we are collecting and analyzing qualitative and quantitative data on the 27 EU member states, um, plus the UK, Serbia, Iceland and Turkey. And we are doing this to produce knowledge on policy and societal responses to COVID-19. And what we do with that, we translate that knowledge the, that we acquire into operational insights and solutions in a, in a process. This, it's a co-creation process that involves different stakeholders. At the end, our ambition in this project is to foster a fair recovery and also a fairer post-pandemic society. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you for agreeing to take the time of your day and record this bit with me. It's been great. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Svetlana. As I mentioned many times in this podcast, the pandemic has affected many parts of our lives. In recent years, we have noticed that mental health has become more of a mainstream and destigmatized topic, at least in my generation. Uh, for the listeners, I am uh, defining myself as something between the millennial and Generation Z. <laughs> However, the pandemic has really caused a skyrocketing increase in mental health issues. And I think it's really important to, to discuss this topic, which is why I'm super excited to have my colleague from COVID Farm Project here, Nuno Marquez. Nuno is a project manager at Factor Social, working on multiple EU projects, but he is also a psychologist, psychotherapist, and HR consultant. Nuno, welcome to this episode, and please feel free to add anything um, I might have missed. First of all, Thank you very much, Lena. I am really happy to be here talking with you about this so important theme. Um, you did a pretty fine job in introducing me. <laughs> I would just uh, want to add that uh, I'm also a family therapist. Well, perfect. Thank you for um, adding that to the list of qualifications <laughs> you have. <laughs> anyway, my first question um, is a very simple one. Do you think we talk enough about mental health? Um, the short answer is no, Svetlana. I think that we don't talk enough about mental health. Although, as you said, 
the, there has been um, a good evolution in this team because uh, in not so many years ago, this was uh, like a taboo. People were afraid or ashamed of talking about mental health or at least about their mental health. This was like a, a stigma. Of course, if it's a taboo and it is a stigma, then it will hinder your possibility of reaching out for help and having support in your mental health. I would like to, to add a metaphor about mental health to, to help us see this, uh, the problem of it. Because, you know, no one would say something like, now you, you broke your leg and now you cannot walk, you are lazy. Or get over it, it's just an heart attack. But some sorts of these questions or this feedback is heard by, was heard and is heard by many people with mental problems. You're just lazy, you're just complaining, uh, with, you have an excellent life, you don't have nothing to complain. So although uh, things are progressing, the society is seeing mental health as a, a huge part of a global wellness and not as something that you should be ashamed of, but something that interacts and it is as important as physical health. But we still have to break some taboos uh, to increase the situation. Well, I couldn't have said it better. The metaphor is really good. My additional question would be, how was this changed by the pandemic? Yes, I, I believe so. Um, you start this uh, started this podcast exactly with the with the information that with the pandemics the mental health cases and problems have skyrocketed and there are many uh, articles about it because uh, uh, with the pandemics uh, we didn't only have and we still are having problems with the uh, public health uh, situation and the, the direct and physical impacts of the pandemic and the virus but also the impact that the protective measures and uh, add on the society and on ourselves with the reduction in our liberties, with the reduction in our, of our social contacts and also facing physical problems, health problems and some of, uh, of us has also dealt with the, the loss of, of loved ones. So this was a huge crisis. Also, the fact that you were recommended or obliged to stay at home, to have less contact with the, with the outdoors, this, this was a, a huge blow because it took some of the parts of the, the protective actions and the, the, good, the good behaviors that, that we can have to promote our mental health. That said, and because the cases indeed increased a lot, we are talking much more about it. We were, I'm seeing this like a, a, a catalyzer, we, because we already were in a phase where society talks much more about mental health and the importance of it. And now with COVID, we talk much more because of uh, not so good factors. We are talking much more about it because it, it has worsened a lot. Well, thank you. I think that really summarizes how our mental health was affected by COVID-19. As the COVID Forum project, we are really trying to highlight the unequal impacts of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think mental health is no different 
But before I ask the question, um, I would like to know what is your definition of inequality and how would you approach it maybe in your personal work experience? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because I'm also involved in the project, I know that we talk about, about inequalities and you will have a very different, we, we have and we will have the different contributions about it. So I will not focus on the, on the definition itself, but how it can translate in our mental health. Because we can see inequality as a, a state or a condition where you are not, uh, you don't have the, the facility to assess the same ways in the same conditions and the same rights than other persons. And that can be because of your um, economic status, that can be because your gender, that can be because of a lot of factors. So, as I said, uh, I will not focus exactly on that, but I will focus what can be the impact on the mental health. Because when we talk about the mind, we talk about um, psychology, we are always talking about perceptions. Uh, We construct our reality and the environment that surrounds us influence a lot the way that we can see the the world and uh, also it can influence a lot the way that you see yourself so you can be from high status economic and social background but if, but if you somehow uh, are in a, are part of a family where you feel that you're constantly being underestimated or you don't feel uh, that you have enough uh, worth uh, you you don't see if you are available person to your family or to your friends or to your surroundings that might affect your self-esteem the way that you see yourself so you can be you can be suffering by inequality by not having enough uh, self-esteem you may think that you are not worth it, that you are not enough, and that you're not be going to be able to succeed or to overcome your problem. Another possible inequality is about the, some of the first things that we talk in this podcast, that is how people perceive uh, mental health. If you have a perception that psychologist is for the, the lazy one, or psychology are for crazy people, or psychologists are for the lazy ones, then you will not be as it not be it will not be so probable that you'll seek help. So you you can be suffering a lot, not asking for help, and that is can be also a huge inequality. Other part that I would like to add is, for instance, when if when we think about economic economic inequalities, normally we are perceiving something like okay, there are people that have more money. And that have also more access to, to opportunities that poor people don't have it. So you could also think that, okay, so because mental health is not as present as it should be in the public health services, this is also inequality. But it, it does not stop over here. Because if you are in a, in a middle, in a in a way, in, a, in your environment, that you have a lot of people that are so self, successful around you. You see, okay, so I can build my own company or I can have a good life. If you are surrounded in the, 
in, uh, economical uh, environment where you don't have a lot of successful people, you might just want to be the best that you know. And maybe that best is a very low standard. With that, I'm not saying that the way or the, the environment where you come will define you forever, because fortunately, we have uh, a huge quality as humans that is resilient, and we have uh, the capability of thriving. But for that, we also need to identify what are the hurdles and the barriers that might limit us. You, you, you already mentioned that maybe people from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds might have harder times accessing therapy. And I'm curious, do you think that not only with in this instance, but do you think that vulnerable groups of people were um, disproportionately impacted by the increase of mental health issues during COVID-19? You know, I'm not totally sure about this because they might be from lower socioeconomical uh, background, but they might be from more stronger and, and bonded communities that help each other. And uh, it's not just your social background that defines if you are uh, more impacted or not. So you might have an help and a sense of community that maybe other people with other economic possibilities don't have. It might be more isolated. Uh, maybe they have a low socioeconomic background, but can have a huge family support. So um, I would not put it like that, but I would put it that for sure, the access for mental health support is, is very different. And that is uh, the, other part, the other part of the impact. So uh, resuming it, I'm not sure if they were more impacted, but for sure, those who were had more difficult in assessing help, having proper help. I think I meant vulnerability in a broader sense. Okay, so this okay, could okay. extend to yes, uh, yes. people, you know, with marginalized gender, people with marginalized sexuality or yes. uh, who has accessibility issues. Um, so, but yes, I think yes. what, what you were saying, the arguments could really translate to those groups as well, that they weren't impacted um, disproportionately, but they had harder times accessing the help, if I'm getting it correctly. Yes, but Svetlana, uh, now that you rephrase it, I, I would have to change my answer. Yes, of course, of course. I think a, a little bit about this. If you are not, from, um, as you said, from, um, what expression did you use? Uh, is something about the gender? or sexuality marginalized or marginalized or a minority right if you are, for instance if you are uh, bisexual or homosexual or another definition that is not the majority you may not have the same questions about other persons should i search for help or not how will the therapist or the psychiatrist react to me those are questions that some people have but they might also have the question is, is the, that professional will accept me or will I have uh, another problem with discrimination? Is this a safe place to me? So other questions might arise. And um, by seeing uh, vulnerability in a broader sense, I'm thinking, for instance, 
in families that already had um, hard problems, for instance, domestic violence, it's, it's hard to imagine that you suffer from domestic violence and then you are struck in the same house with the aggressor for, for years. So yes, uh, some vulnerable people and groups were much more impacted than the, the rest of the population. Yes, thank you for elaborating on that. I think it's definitely very important to mention this. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have much more time, but I have one more question for you, and that is, what can we all do to look after our mental health, especially in uh, times like these? So, first of all, we should be very aware of ourselves. Um, we should be very aware of our body and how do we feel. It's normal that we can feel more stressed in some days. It's normal that we feel uh, a little sadder with something when something happens. But if that perception, uh, and, and let me add another thing, it's normal that we have very uncommon reactions to trauma or to a loss. If something happened to you, can be in a larger scale, for instance, what's happening right now in Ukraine, uh, or if you lose someone that you love, or if something happens to you, it's normal that you have, or if you got robbed or something like that, or if you lose your job, that you have these feelings. These, uh, let me just uh, simplify it as not so good feelings. If you feel sad, the body and your, and your, and your mind is telling you that you don't feel all right with this situation. But if, and you have to listen to it, don't try to brush it off and put it under the mat so that it's nothing, this is nothing, this, this will pass. If it passes, great. But if it not passes, take care of you because something inside of you is saying that you are not in a situation that is good for you. Maybe you have to change it. And also, check for the things that give you energy for some persons this can be doing physical exercises do what you love going outdoors being with the people that you love but also other persons or the same persons may take a lot of pleasure on their work and that is a good sign so take a mental note of what gives you energy and what takes you energy and you have to balance the things to see what you can do to take care of yourself. And even if you are in a, in a profession of helping, of caring for others, or if you're not in that profession, but you are taking care of someone, of your friends, of your family, don't forget that you have to take care of the carrier. So if you don't take care of you, you won't be able to help other people much longer and better. Thank you for these kind words. I think it's a great way to finish our discussion today. Again, thank you so much for finding the time of your day. You're welcome, Svetlana. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care. All the best. The last topic we are going to discuss today is migration. European population is not homogeneous sample, and as we previously mentioned, our complex societies require approaching this in a sense that one shoe does not fit them all. Today, I invited my colleague from the Covinform project, Dr. Laura van Prague, to discuss the interconnected relationship of migration and inequalities and the impact of COVID-19. 
Laura is the director at the Center for Migration and Intercultural Studies at the University of Antwerp. Hi, Laura. It's great to have you here. Um, please feel, feel free to add um, anything I might have missed in the introduction. So thanks a lot for inviting me, and uh, I'm very happy uh, to be here and to be part of the COVID-Inform uh, project. Well, it's a pleasure having you here. First, uh, before we deep dive into the interview, I would like to maybe establish some terms that we are going to use today. Could you please tell me a little bit more and to our listeners as well, what are we talking about when discussing migration? And how does the meaning differ when we call someone migrants or refugee? Okay, thank you. That's also a very important topic because uh, often people use terms and they refer to different things and they also mean different things in different settings. So especially when you work uh, in a European context, um, a term which may be used uh, in France may have a different meaning in uh, Belgium, for instance. But how to start migration as such, it really refers to people who have uh, temporarily moved from one place to another. And this could be both within and across international borders. And for instance, when we discuss a migrant's health, we refer mainly to people who have migrated away from his or her habitual place of residence and look at the health of this uh, person. Uh, however, uh, within this group of migrants, there's a lot of uh, diversity depending on the region of origin, reasons for migration and the migration networks. And within this group of uh, migrants, you have refugees who are a specific category of migrants and who are uh, following the UNHCR, people who have fled war, violence, conflict and persecution and have crossed an international border to find safety in another country. Actually, refugees are people that receive legal protection under the Convention of Genève that was established in 1951. Uh, and because of that, they, they make out a particular category of migrants. So they're also uh, migrants. So in everyday life and discussions, we expand this notion of migrants, often to people who did not migrate, but whose parents or grandparents have migrated. And in everyday life, we uh, refer to them as second or even third generation migrants or people with a migration background. In some cases, they also fall under the category of ethnic and cultural minorities as uh, in the end, those persons themselves did not migrate, uh, which makes it also different, uh, difficult to place them under this category of migrants. So to assess the exact vulnerabilities of migrants, it's always good to uh, clearly specify uh, to who you're referring to um, as someone who recently arrived in a new immigrant country, may experience, for instance, more issues related to language barrier, housing or protection, while, uh, for instance, second generation migrants may be more vulnerable due to experiences of stigma, discrimination, and so on. So, when talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on migrants, uh, in general, it is good to, to, to understand which type of migrants we're talking about to really understand their vulnerabilities. Amazing. Thank you so much for clarifying. I think it really helped us to establish the frameworks we are going to talk about today. Obviously, we are going to talk about the pandemic, but before we do so, I would like to discuss in what way the migration poses a risk on someone to be more prone to experience 
inequalities in the immigrant country. How do you think the concept of inequality plays out when it comes to migration? So when uh, indeed uh, many migrants are more prone to experience social, ethnic, cultural, and even uh, political inequalities, and this is especially because of their relatively new position in society, which means that they're not always fully aware of all practicalities, customs, functionalities of the institutions in this new society. And on top of that, many experience also language barriers uh, or have insecure residence permits which in the end makes it that maybe they, they could be aware of some uh, COVID-19 measures, but they, they uh, find it hard to communicate about it or to navigate within the healthcare system. Even, uh, and this is even more strengthened when, when you don't have your residence permit, um, which makes you take different decisions. On top of that, uh, this could also be strengthened by attitudes and responses of the local population, uh, which also strengthens uh, existing inequalities. For instance, if you uh, are discriminated on the housing or labor market, you, you may find uh, more uh, difficult access to pro uh, appropriate housing, you have more difficulties to, to stay in a nice place. And especially in this COVID pandemic, this was really important. Uh, as many uh, people had to stay at home all the time. So um, if you're in uh, poor housing conditions, actually this also could impact uh, your participation in society and dealing with this COVID pandemic. Uh, at the same time, they could also receive limited information or support uh, or guidance in schools uh, and so on, or uh, do not always find their, their ways in, in the digital tools which became more important during the COVID pandemic. So for instance, if the school suddenly goes online and does everything online, you, you, you depend more on these uh, language barriers and you often need more support to also correctly interpret these uh, guidelines. While normally at, uh, at the school gate, you could easily ask uh, the teacher uh, and ask for some additional uh, support. I'm glad you uh, already mentioned COVID-19 and specific measures. In the previous episodes, we came across two concepts when we talked about migrants and COVID-19 pandemic. And those two concepts were trust and stigmatization. So my question really is, what was the impact of COVID-19 on migrant communities? And maybe if you could elaborate a little bit about um, those two concepts of trust and stigmatization relating to the migrant communities and COVID-19 impact. Uh, indeed, those two concepts are very important uh, when it comes to understanding uh, migrants' uh, behavior and attitudes during the COVID-19 pandemic. When it comes to trust, we noted that already prevailing relationships between migrants and the communities in the government became already more pronounced. Having a lack of trust in the government could have come from their migration histories and reasons for migrations, for instance, when in the region of origin there was already war or a corrupt government, people are less uh, inclined to trust the government. This doesn't always only apply to governments in the region of origin, but also to governments in immigrant countries, which could give rise to the establishment of mistrust due to unequal treatment of the government, feeling stigmatized and having more difficulties already on, on other aspects of their lives making it hard to really uh, follow this government. Distrust was especially visible when looking at the vaccination campaigns and also showed a disproportionate amount of migrants 
groups not willing to get a vaccine, which was also very important and, and very noticeable, exactly because um, many migrants occupy particular professions, uh, such as uh, working in healthcare, working in childcare, who are actually uh, the ones at the front line uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic, who had to work also a lot with, with people, making them more um, vulnerable uh, to get an if, uh, infected by COVID-19 virus. So in that sense, uh, it was also very visible that uh, in some groups in society, they were not willing to take a vaccine because they did not trust uh, the government uh, and, and the measures taken by the government. And on top of that, um, we also saw that migrants receive information not only uh, related to the information given by uh, one uh, specific government of one country, but because of their transnational ties, they were uh, receiving also more information from other countries, making uh, it also that they, they could negotiate or that they relied on, on more sources of information and which could also give sometimes rise to distrust, for instance, when taking these uh, vaccines. Concerning stigmatization, some groups, especially Asian groups, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic received an increase in stigma related to the uh, emergence of the COVID-19 virus itself, given its origin in China, which was also felt in everyday experiences, as well as media for people of Asian origin or with stereotypical Asian looks. So that was uh, really noticeable. And also people, even when they were born uh, and raised in, in a particular European country, they were still, uh, they were also stigmatized. I'm going to come back to some of the things you mentioned in your answer in a bit. But first, I would like to ask, when talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, how do you think it affected migration as such and migrants in particular? Well, um, it was very explicit uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic that there was an impact on migration itself. So uh, many borders were closed. People could not travel anymore, uh, which made it also more difficult, especially for migrants who had often more transnational networks, who couldn't see their family members, uh, and also, well, who were a little bit stuck in a particular country while normally they could, uh, they were more mobile. So the COVID-19 pandemic uh, had also an impact on migration itself, uh, exactly because many borders were closed. People were not able to see their relatives who lived abroad. They were often not able to go to work if they worked uh, abroad. Uh, especially some groups really migrate for uh, labor market opportunities and they were not able to return home uh, while working for long periods of time. Also at borders itself, there was a lot of violence, uh, also complicated migration. And once migrated, um, you saw also that in many European uh, countries, there was a closing of reception centers, uh, administration was suddenly uh, closed, and um, also the living conditions in reception centers were not optimal to face the COVID-19 pandemic, especially because you were uh, living together with such a, a large number of people at the same time, making people more vulnerable to get COVID-19. Also people who are not registered yet, they had more difficult difficulties to receive the vaccine and also they, they often lost their jobs. Uh, 
who were often not uh, legal uh, under legal circumstances. So it made it even more harder to survive for a particular group of uh, migrants. Also, by looking at migrant communities who already stayed longer in a particular immigrant country, uh, they also have been disproportionately impacted compared to those without a migration background, especially because many integration facilities were hampered or stopped uh, due to the specific uh, COVID-19 pandemic, such as language courses were uh, suddenly digital, which also impacted the, their opportunity to make uh, new social contacts. And apart from, from those very specific uh, integration facilities, uh, many migrant communities were also impacted because of the specific socioeconomic conditions in which uh, a majority of those migrants uh, live. Uh, we know that many migrants actually live in poor socioeconomic conditions, which actually uh, results in living in smaller housing units, having less ICT facilities, especially, for instance, in a family where everyone has to work online or kids have to follow school, then it's very clearly noticeable. Also, uh, migrants work more often compared to non-migrants uh, in short-term jobs or precarious jobs and more manual jobs or in the healthcare sector itself, as I previously mentioned, making them also more vulnerable uh, to, to the COVID-19 pandemic. You mentioned a lot of policies and how they affected the migrant community. And I'm curious because um, in the previous episodes, we also mentioned that most of the policies weren't written with, you know, vulnerable people in mind. Um, and uh, they usually weren't considered when uh, writing the policies. So I'm, I'm curious, do you have a specific example of COVID-19 policy that was discriminatory against the migrant communities? Well, uh, you would really have to delve deeper into uh, the policies of uh, very particular uh, countries. Uh, in, in the case of Belgium, for instance, it worked both ways. So uh, normally in Flanders, uh, who are the, the Flemish government is very much focused on language, where all government uh, communicates only in Dutch. Uh, but now, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, some uh, information campaigns were suddenly uh, translated to reach as much as possible people. So suddenly, uh, due to the urgency, of course, the government, the local government noted that it could also be interesting to start uh, translating something. So that worked out in a more positive way. So suddenly, uh, you saw also interesting initiatives uh, at the local level, but most general uh, policies uh, assumed that people were able to stay at home. And especially, as mentioned before, uh, when you live in summer uh, together uh, with a lot of people in a small housing unit, everyone has to have a computer to follow courses, to do everything. Just sitting there makes it more com complicated if you couldn't go outside. So in, in the beginning of the lockdown in, in Belgium, you saw that people could walk around, but they couldn't sit on a bench. Uh, especially in summer, it was uh, beautiful weather. Everyone wanted to go outside. And if you have a garden, it's nice. You sit outside. Um, life continues, albeit in a, in a slightly different way. But 
if you don't have a garden, if uh, you all live together in a small apartment, then you feel the impacts disproportionate, which is, of course, not only for migrants, but uh, for everyone living in the same uh, housing uh, situation. So that is one way uh, in which uh, these migrant communities and other vulnerable socioeconomic groups could uh, be impacted to a higher extent. In, in, in this case, in, in Antwerp, uh, they also gave fines for people uh, going to the supermarket when it wasn't urgent. So you could only go for urgent situations where you saw that disproportionate higher number of fines were given to migrants communities as people walked around and then it, it's more um, there is more room for discrimination and negotiation as what is urgent and what is not and then especially then you saw some more uh, stereotypical and discriminatory actions in the execution of some some of these measures that police uh, units controlled more often in particular neighborhoods and and because of that, they, they also gave more fines to, to those people, which was also disproportionately hard felt. Well, thank you. That was really insightful. Um, I didn't know about the specific um, policies in Belgium. So that was really insightful. Thank you. Anyway, unfortunately, this uh, was my last question. It was great having you here. Do you want to say goodbye? <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. And uh, well, we're looking forward to share more of our research insights about uh, long-term consequences of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic on migrant communities and other vulnerable groups across Europe. So thanks, uh, thanks again for having me. Well, thank you for finding the time. It was really insightful. To our listeners, thank you for spending the time of your day with us. Unfortunately, we are going to say goodbye for a few months. Our final episode, which will be packed with the results of the Covinform project, will be released after the summer break. So make sure to follow the Covinform project on social media so you don't miss any important updates and um, the last episode of the podcast. So stay healthy and stay safe. <laughs>